right, church, we'll go ahead, open up your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. Probably have three, <clears throat> including this one, three more messages going through the book of uh, Jonah. And as you are turning there to Jonah chapter 3, I want to put another verse up in front of you that we'll have up on the screens for you to consider as we lay a foundation for these verses that I'm about to preach through in Jonah chapter 3. And that is Luke 15, verse 10. In Luke 15, Jesus is teaching the parable of the lost sheep. He's teaching the parable of the lost coin. He teaches the parable of the prodigal son, or maybe better titled, the running father. And in the middle of all that, he, Jesus drops this truth bomb on us about the heart of God. And Jesus says in Luke 15, verse 10, he says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, I had always read that verse and, and assumed that the joy was coming or originating from the angels, right? Like they're joyful and they're celebrating and they're all happy when someone repents and that's pretty cool to have the angels joyful and, and excited about it. But that's actually not the point that Jesus is trying to make here. Yes, the angels do rejoice, but he says there is joy before the angels. There is joy in the presence of the angels. And whose presence are the angels of God in? Yeah, they're in God's presence. They're in God's presence. Jesus is saying God, God rejoices when we repent. God rejoices when we repent. There is joy in heaven when image bearers of God repent, when they have a change of heart and mind about sin, when they turn from their ways to God's ways. God rejoices when we repent. And today, I believe, I've been given the task to not only walk us through Jonah chapter 3, but then to also call us to repentance. But as we're laying that groundwork down, as we're talking about what we need to repent of here and now, I want you to be mindful of what's happening in heaven as we repent here on earth. Jesus says there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so we're picking up the story of Jonah in chapter 3. You'll remember the first time Jonah was commissioned to go preach to the Ninevites. What did he do? He got up and he ran the opposite direction. But God was gracious to him. God throws a storm at him to keep him from getting where he's trying to go. He then saves him from drowning in the sea. And after three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, he's now been returned to dry land. And God comes a second time and recommissions him. And Jonah, remember, remember what we talked about last week, he recommissions Jonah not to necessarily just go for him, but to go with him and to preach the message that he's going to give him. And this time Jonah obeys. And so this morning now we will see Jonah go and preach. We will see Nineveh believe. And then we will see how God responds 
And that will be how we organize this sermon this morning. Jonah preaches, Nineveh believes, and God responds. And all along the way, I would ask you to be asking the Spirit of God to search your heart and to show you how you need to repent this morning. Show you that aspect of your heart that you need to turn from your ways to God's ways. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer again, and let's ask Him for His help as we uh, start to go through Jonah chapter 3. Father God, we do thank You for the gift of Your Word. And Lord, I ask that as it is read and as it is proclaimed, that You would do a great work in our hearts. Lord, we ask that this would not just be information to us, God, but that this would truly, Your Word would transform us that your spirit would convict us and comfort us. God, may we see your glory and your grace in this story, and may we see your glory and your grace in our lives. And God, may you show us, Spirit, show us, reveal to us the ways that we need to repent this morning. And may we be overwhelmed by just what an amazing God you are, that you would rejoice when we repent. So, Father, we ask for your help. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Jonah 3, verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth, and Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So you'll remember that Nineveh was a part of the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrians were known for their brutality and their violence, for not only conquering people, but just humiliating them in the process. They did horrific things to torture people and degrade them. And I won't share those examples because I know we've got people of all ages and kids in here this morning, but just, uh, just know the worst things that you could imagine an empire doing. They probably did. And even beyond what you could imagine in their cruelty and their creativity. And Jonah shows up to this huge enemy city and he preaches. And some people think that this is maybe just a summary of the sermon that he gave. You know, maybe he did actually have an introduction and a conclusion and some points along the way. Or maybe this is all he preaches. This is, this is what God's Word says. This is, maybe this is all he preaches. And in the original language, it is a five-word sermon. Which as I was writing this sermon, I was sort of fantasizing about if the Lord would ever give me a five-word sermon and maybe... Some of you have fantasized about that as well. But whether this is a summary of what he preached or whether these are just the only exact words that God gave him to preach, here his message is, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now that word overthrown can have two different meanings, all right? It can mean destroyed or it can mean turned around. And so God gives him this message to preach, which we know the end of the story, and that God's intent is for Nineveh to be turned around. However, Jonah is hoping for them to be destroyed. 
And so you can imagine the posture and the tone that Jonah is preaching with. I mean, he, he hates these people he's preaching to. In the next chapter, in Jonah chapter 4, we're going to see just how disgusted he is that God is actually being gracious and merciful to these people. And so he's going around preaching, hey, 40 days, and you guys are going to burn. I heard a story uh, recently about a church who had just gotten a new preaching pastor, and a guest had come up and asked one of the members uh, why they fired their old pastor. And the member said, well, our last pastor, when he was preaching, he always told us that we were going to hell. And the guest asked, oh, you know, like, okay, well, what does your new pastor tell you? And he said, well, our new pastor also tells us that we're going to hell, but it just seems better. And the guest asked, well, like, how is that, how is that better? Like, what's, what's going on there? And the, the member said, well, our old pastor when he would tell us we're going to hell, he would say it with a smile on his face. Like he was kind of excited about it. Whereas the new pastor, I mean, he's, you know, he, he's, he's grieving, he's weeping, he's sorrowful about this. And so if you want kind of the proper picture of how Jonah is preaching, he's preaching like that first pastor is preaching. He's saying, hey, Nineveh, You've got 40 days, and then you've got what you, you got coming to you what you deserve. Maybe he even made a note in his sermon, you know, like, try not to smile at this point, right? But that's how Jonah is preaching. But as we will see, it's a five-word sermon that leads to possibly one of the greatest and most surprising revivals in the history of the world. And so here's a truth right from the start that we can pull out of this and apply, and that is that God can work even through bad preaching. And you're like, yeah, we know. We go here, right? And listen, guys, those are hurtful words, all right? I don't appreciate that. No, I'm just kidding. But, but, but it's true. God can work even through imperfect and weak and bad preaching and messengers. Amen? And, and in all seriousness, this is a comfort to me as I step up here to the pulpit to declare to you glory that my lips are not worthy to declare and glory that my mind is too small to even comprehend. My comfort is that God can work his strength through our weaknesses, and that seems to be how he typically works. And so take heart, all of you who are being raised up to teach and preach the word. I mean, by God's grace, strive to do your best. Strive to study and prepare and plan. But as you step up to proclaim, trust that God will work through his word sometimes and many times, even in spite of you. And this truth is not just a truth for preachers and teachers. This is a truth for all of us who are tasked with sharing God's word with God's people. There's always this intimidation we face that we can really be the ones to speak God's word, right? That we can really share God's word with others. And, and I even face this intimidation talking about the word with my kids or neighbors or family or friends. But listen, God can work and does work 
through imperfect messengers and messages. He does. And we don't always see how God, what God is doing behind the scenes with people. We don't always see what God is doing in the hearts of people. You see, what historians have pointed out about the Ninevites here was that in the years leading up to Jonah's preaching, the Assyrian Empire had actually been struggling. There had actually been famines in the land. There had actually been plagues and pandemics. There had been revolts and uprisings. There were internal battles going and conflicts going on amongst the Assyrians leading up to this time. There had been large earthquakes and even a solar eclipse that got them all shook up and really prepared to now hear this message. And so God has been being gracious to the Ninevites in the years leading up to this sermon. He has been preparing them for what Jonah uh, was going to preach. Even then, Jonah was oblivious to all this. And so Jonah shows up and he preaches this sermon to a people that God has chosen to be gracious to by sending them these calamities, preparing them to hear his word. And then a preacher shows up and proclaims it. And that now one of the most shocking and surprising things in the entire Bible happens in verse 5. Jonah 3, verse 5, is one of the most shocking and surprising things you can read in your Bible. And Jonah 3, verse 5 says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. The people of Nineveh believed God. Nineveh. Those people believed God. I mean, we can't even get church-going people to believe God. Jonah preaches, and the people of Nineveh believe God. Are you kidding me? I mean, aren't we such pessimistic people at times that many times we go into preaching or to, into evangelism or into discipleship uh, just really skeptical that anything good is going to come from it? And yet here... A miracle happens, and the people of Nineveh believe God. And look what they do. It says, They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. All right, fasting was a way in the ancient world, even amongst pagan nations, a way for them to seek mercy from God, right? They're seeking this mercy from God. Sackcloth was cloth made from coarse animal skin, and when people put it on, it was a sign and symbol of their repentance, okay? So they fast, they put on sackcloth. Verse 6 says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Listen, when royalty, when royalty removes their robe, I mean, this is a sign of humility. All right, this is a sign of the king humbling himself. He's taking off his royal robe. He's removing it. And then the king issues a repentance mandate in verse 7. He says, And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the 
violence that is in his hands, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The Ninevites are not messing around here. (laughs) I mean, they even make their animals fast. All right? Every creature in Nineveh is seeking God's mercy here. Right? From the king to the animals. And this is, this is unbelievable. This is one of the greatest revivals in the history of the world. Now what is unfortunate about it is that history tells us that this repentance was most likely only momentary and most likely only for this gener- generation of Ninevites. And we know this because 40 to 60 years after this, we know the Assyrians do return to their cruel and violent ways, and they come and conquer Israel and destroy and carry off the northern kingdom. And so, obviously, there wasn't any generational discipleship that happened here. Uh, There weren't parents passing down to their kids this message that they heard from Jonah, right? But God in His grace for whatever reason, has set his affection on this generation of Ninevites, and he was gracious to them, and he was merciful to them, and he sent Jonah to them to preach to them. And notice who it says that they believed in verse 5. It says that they believed God. You'd almost expect it to say they believed Jonah. But no, they believed God. You see, true repentance comes when people hear and they ultimately believe the word of God and not simply a human messenger. All right, so if you've got your favorite celebrity preacher that you listen to or something like that and you believe him and what he says, that is not going to be as powerful, and that is not going to lead to the heart change you need unless he's preaching to you plainly and clearly the word of God, and you're able to believe God. We know that this is true repentance and true revival because the people believed God. And notice also they didn't just hear the message. They believed it. They believed it. And this has to be the first step for us as well. As we hear the word of God, we have to ask God to help us believe it. Help us believe it. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. It's not enough to just hear God's word. We have to believe it. We also see here that true repentance and true revival comes when we humble ourselves before the Lord. I mean, they respond with fasting and putting on sackcloth. The king takes off his royal robe. May that just be a good picture for us as we think about humbling ourselves before the Lord. The king takes off his royal robe and he submits himself to the Lord. Sadly, Many people will never reach true repentance because they won't humble themselves before the Lord. 
we won't take off our royal robe of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. We won't expose our sinfulness and weakness to others and to God. You see, I've sat with plenty of people who are experiencing false repentance. All right? False repentance looks like someone being grieved over the fact that they've been caught in a sin. Or they are grieved over the effects and fallout of sin in their life because it typically does lead to loss of relationships and jobs and reputations and things like that. And so a lot of people, they will feel bad about it. They feel maybe bad that they've hurt other people in the process. But typically what is missing in false repentance is they have not yet felt the gravity that they have ultimately sinned against a holy God. Typically what is missing is the sorrow, the sorrow in in true repentance is not just over the effects of sin, but it's over the offense of sin, that we have committed cosmic treason against the Lord. And so we need to listen and to hear this. As we know, you know, many of us, we are kind of the, the, the prideful, religious, arrogant runner like Jonah was. Listen, we all need to hear this. True repentance does not look like you feeling sorry and continuing to run in your pride. True repentance looks like you coming to the point where you can say like David did in Psalm 51, that against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You have to humble yourself. You have to take off your royal robe of religious zeal and pride, and you have to humble yourself before the Lord. You have to see not just the effects of sin, you have to see the offense of sin. And so the Ninevites here, they... They did this. They believed God. And they responded by humbling themselves and seeking God's mercy and forgiveness. And then what else did they do? It says they specifically turned from what they needed to turn from. They specifically repented from what they needed to repent of, and namely that was their violence. The Ninevites, who were known for their violence here, right? God has gotten to the heart of the people and to the king, so much so that a civil government is now mandating people to turn from their evil and their violence. Now listen, God never commands us to start a revival. He doesn't. God has to be the one to light the fire of a revival. We can't manufacture it. We can't schedule it. But God does command us to preach the word, to pray, to disciple, to evangelize, and to repent of our sin. And as you study some of the revivals throughout church history, many times you see that these things start happening in the church. And then the flame is lit that spreads throughout the city. 
And so our responsibility is not to feel like we have to start a revival. Our responsibility is to faithfully preach the word and to pray and to disciple one another and to evangelize and to repent of our sin. And by so doing, we will be ready for revival. Now to repent, to repent means to to change one's mind. To repent means to turn from our way to God's way. And we can quickly get easily fired up about how others need to repent, can't we? But listen, repentance has to start in here. It has to start in the church. And so I didn't come today with the primary purpose to call out all the sin out there that needs to be repented of. I came to call out the sin in here. That needs to be repented of. The Assyrians needed to repent of their violence. Maybe that's not directly applicable to you. What do you need to repent of? Is it your sexual immorality? Is it your idolatry? You've put something other than God on the throne of your heart. Is it jealousy? Is it fits of anger? I'm pulling these from Galatians 5. Some of us get in fits of anger over everything that needs to be repented of out there. And God's like, hey, revival is coming out there, but revival out there always starts in here. And what in the world makes us think that our culture needs to repent and our churches don't? God starts with his people. And when his people repent and turn to him, then there is a blessing that overflows out to their city and their country and their world. So what do you need to repent of this morning? Is it your anxiety? Is it sinful fear? Is it pride? Have you heard God and believed God? Have you really humbled yourself? Have you seen him as the primary one your sin has offended? Have you taken off your royal robe of self-righteousness? Most problems in your life and in our world could be solved through repentance. That's something I've just been mulling over this week. Maybe there's exceptions to that. Maybe there's, there's things I'm not thinking through right on that. You can call me out on that. But listen, turning from sin and turning to God solves almost everything I can think of. It's like the duct tape of the universe, repentance is, right? It's, it's, it's going to solve some things when we turn from our ways to God's ways. There are some things we face in life that are complex issues, things we need to get a, a multiple people to give us wise counsel on. But there are so many things in our life and in our world that could be simply solved through repentance, turning back to God's ways. And yet, maybe you are afraid of turning to God or turning over something to God because you're not sure how God will respond. You're not certain if God will really 
rejoice over you repenting. Maybe you think he's still going to be angry and annoyed with you. Will he really receive you? Can you really trust him to turn kind of your whole life over and turn all these things you love over to him? And look at verse 10, and I want you to see how God responds to the Ninevites. In Jonah 3, verse 10, here we see God responds. And he says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And so what we need to notice here is that God is not dragging his feet in relenting from the disaster that he said would come. God is not reluctantly being merciful to the Ninevites. No, right away, right away, when he saw their repentance, he relented from pouring out judgment on, him, on them. He turned his wrath away from them. And not only that, but remember, this is a God who then in, in heaven is rejoicing when we repent. There's a party in heaven over this. Yes, he can be stirred up to holy wrath. He can be stirred up to judgment. He can have a righteous anger. But the scriptures tell us that those things like take some, like he's slow to anger, but he quickly relents and rejoices when people repent. I mean, how good is our God? He's better and more glorious than we could have even imagined. He's better and more glorious than any human could, could think to make up and write. He's slow to anger, but he's ready to rejoice and relent when we repent. Praise God. Now, we do have to do a little bit of digging into something. Because this verse, Jonah 3 verse 10, as well as a handful of others, bring up a topic that gives people some trouble at times as they try to understand Scripture. And I want you to be equipped to, to read Scripture on your own, interpret Scripture on your own. And the reason that this topic comes up is that it says, you know, in this story, God had said that disaster was coming to the Ninevites. And then it doesn't. And verse 10 says God relented, which is the Hebrew word for repented. And that's how the KJV and the RSV translate it. I don't think that's as helpful today as a translation with that, those words because to translate God repented, um, in modern English it could be confusing because the word repentance, we typically use it in reference to sin, as in reference to someone turning from sin and, and turning to God, which, again, in re reference to sin, that is a fine way to understand that. But the word repentance most literally means, right, to have a change of mind, to turn from one thing to another. And so don't be confused into thinking that God was going to sin against them or do evil against them, but then he didn't. No, God is righteous and holy, and all he does is righteous and holy. God bringing judgment on Nineveh would not have been evil. It would have been righteous and just. But God did relent from that, and he did turn from that. And so then the other question that gets raised is, well, does God relenting or turning from what he said he was going to do, does that mean that God changed his mind? Some of you didn't even know we were uh, walking around the deep end of the theological pool, but we have fallen in at this point, all right? 
So the quick answer to that, does God change his mind? The quick answer is, well, no, at least not in the exact same way that human beings change their mind. Okay, and so if you will allow me, I need to exit the pulpit a little bit and we'll go to the classroom. And uh, there are a couple things that need to be kept in mind as we read scripture. Okay, so this will feel a little bit less like a sermon, more like a classroom, but I promise we will come back to the sermon. All right. The first thing to understand when we are reading scripture is what type of genre we are reading when we are reading the Bible. Because yes, this is one book with one main storyline and one main hero, but it is made up of individual books that are written at different times and are meant to be read in different ways, all right? And so some of the biblical genres we'll have up on the screen, right? You've got, you've got narrative, you've got you know, Old Testament history and narrative, you've got poetry, you've got wisdom literature, you've got prophecy, You've got the Gospels, which are a lot of narrative, but it's also, they're also the Gospels. The, the authors are proclaiming something specific there. You've got the parables, you've got letters to churches, and you've got apocalyptic literature. And so this is one of the first things that I do as I come to a text of Scripture to study it or just read it, is I want to open it up and really try to understand what type of genre I am reading. Because poetry and Old Testament narrative are not to be read the same way. And prophecy and parables are not meant to be read the same way. And so that's the first thing we need to understand, is what genre am I, am I reading? But then you also need to be aware of two terms that the writers of the Bible utilize. And when I talk about writers of the Bible, I mean, I want you guys to understand, we believe that this is the inspired word of God, okay? But it comes to us through human authors using human language, and therefore, in scriptures, we see what are called anthropomorphisms and anthropopathisms. And I will try to not have to use those terms ever again, but I want you to be aware of them, okay? So what, what is an anthropomorphism? That is when scripture ascribes human body parts to God in order to communicate an idea. Anthropopathisms are when Scripture ascribes human emotional changes to God in order to communicate an idea. Now, these are not new theological concepts or anything that I came up with. Even John Owen, back in the 1600s, said all the Orthodox Christians agree there are anthropomorphisms and anthropopathisms in the Bible, and they are not to be interpreted literally. So let me give you an example. Exodus 7, verse 5. It says, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Now, what's the problem with interpreting that literally? I mean, it's a good verse. It's a solid verse. Most of us would read that verse and not think a second about it. My only problem with that verse is it says when I stretch out my hand and God doesn't have hands. Right? Am I thinking through? God, okay, so this is pre-incarnation. This is pre-Jesus coming to earth, putting on flesh. Jesus taught us that God is spirit, so God doesn't have hands like we have hands. Now, God is not lying here when he says that he's going to stretch out his hand against the Egyptians. He's not contradicting himself when Jesus comes along and says God is spirit. 
No, this is what's called divine accommodation. God is using human language to try to help his finite creation start to understand their infinite God. So when I, when I worked in the ER, there would be many times where we would have to call a specialist in to take a look at a patient. And oftentimes we would have to call the cardiologist, all right? So if someone was having a heart problem, we'd call the cardiologist. They would come in and talk to the patient. Typically, they'd go into the room very quickly, speak very quickly, and leave very quickly, all right? Uh, they were busy people. They had stuff to do. So what I would always try to do is I would try to go in the room with the cardiologist because typically when they started speaking and explaining what they were going to do, uh, the patient's eyes would start to kind of glaze over, and you could tell nothing was really sticking with them, okay? And so I would stay in there, and then as the cardiologist left, more times than not, I would wait for the patient to turn to me and say, what did he just say? And so I would try to accommodate in a relatable way. I would say something like, all right, so he said, this is not a plumbing problem with your heart, None of the pipes are clogged. It's an electrical problem. He's a plumber, and you need an electrician. Now, I wasn't being literal there. I mean, I love electricians, all right? This is no, but I wasn't being literal there. What I was doing was I was accommodating, I was communicating an idea that we needed a different type of cardiologist that specializes in the electrical activity of the heart. Now, the reason that this is important is because people can at times take some of these anthropomorphisms and anthropopathisms and they've taken them literally instead of the original intent of the author, which was to communicate a specific idea in relatable terms. And then what happens is by taking then human reasoning instead of scripture, you can come up with some bad theology and false, uh, faulty doctrine. And so I don't want you to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine or every bad interpretation that comes out. So, so you can't take an anthropomorphism like the one in Exodus referring to God having hands, and you can't then extrapolate on that and say, well, if God has hands, then his hands are maybe going to get arthritis someday. His hands are maybe going to get full. His hands are going to maybe drop some things because I have hands and I drop things. Now, that's sort of a silly example, but we do have some that will take Jonah 3, verse 10, and a few other things that are found typically in the genre of Old Testament narrative, where the author's trying to relate things about God to us, and they've taken some of these things that say, like, God regretted doing something, or God repented of something, or God changed his mind about something, and then they can wrongly extrapolate that to say things like, well, when I regret something, it's, it's, that's because it's, I did something wrong and now I need to do something right. So God must be like that. Well, no, Scripture doesn't say that, right? Or, or, or when I change my mind about something, it's, you know, it's because my emotions are kind of all over the place. So God must be like that too. Well, no, no, Scripture doesn't say that. 
Or, or when I change my mind about something, it's typically because I've learned some more information about something, and now I can make a better decision. So God must not be all-knowing if he at times kind of changes on things like that. And really, I know these are a lot of like complex things to think through, but, but ultimately, at the end of the day, what I want us to understand is that God is not exactly like us. And God rebukes us over and over in the Bible for thinking that he is just like us. So in Psalm 50, verse 21, he says, These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. And so what my caution is, is to not take a verse like Jonah 3, verse 10, or a handful of other verses, and allow us to get off track from what we know to be true about God all throughout the Scripture. All right, so he does not have hands exactly like we have hands. And he does not change his mind exactly like we change our mind. There are a handful of Old Testament narrative verses that try to make God more relatable to us. But we know from the rest of Scripture that God's sovereign will does not change. His nature and character do not change. In Numbers 23, verse 19, it says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Now, admittedly, when you have a God who is outside of time and he enters into time to interact with his creation in time and space, that can at times seem to us like he's changing or the sovereign will and plan is changing. But even in those moments, he is always acting consistently with his nature and his character, which never changes. He always opposes the proud. He always gives grace to the humble. He always stores up wrath for wickedness. And he always pours out favor on the righteous. And what is so glorious about the personal work of Jesus Christ is that God himself came and endured the wrath that was being stored up for our wickedness so that he could take our sin and he could give us his righteousness so that we who are now in Christ can experience the favor, the fellowship, and the friendship of God. Jesus Christ has turned God's wrath against us to now favor and this was the Father's plan from the beginning. This was the plan that the Son willingly carried out. And the Spirit is now powerfully applying. We have a God who loves to pour out His grace and His mercy on us. He rejoices when we repent. And so God here is not necessarily surprised when Nineveh repents. He's not on the edge of his seat wondering what they're going to do. I mean, even Jonah is suspicious that he knows what God is up to here. And this was all playing out in real time, but very much a part of the sovereign plan of God. God had been gracious to send them famines and earthquakes and civil unrest. God had been gracious to send them Jonah. And God, as he always does when the Ninevites repent, God relents and rejoices. Which is really what we need to take away from this morning. I feel like that statement, God doesn't have hands, might be the thing that sticks with you. That's not, that's not the main point. Please do not be that, that, that 
hopefully that's not what you take away from this, all right? The main point is that when people repent, God relents and rejoices to do so. God does not call us to orchestrate a revival, but he does call us to repent. And church, if revival and widespread repentance are to happen in our city, it has to start in our churches. It has to start this morning in your heart. And so I ask you again, what is God calling you to repent of? Nineveh heard God's word and they believed God. Do we? Can the same be said of us? Can this be said of Franklin City Church? They heard the word of God and they believed God. I mean, I want my kids to be able to put this on my tombstone. He believed God. (laughs) What a happy and blessed life that would be, would it not? To believe God all of our days. What grace that would be if God would help our unbelief and enable us to believe. Do we believe that Franklin City Church could hear the word and believe it? Do we believe that the majority of people in Franklin and Johnson County could at one day hear the word of God and believe God? Listen, God is bigger and greater and more gracious than we could ever imagine. And if Nineveh could believe God and repent, then I believe God can grant this repentance to us as well. But it starts in here. It starts with the preaching of the word. It starts when we start believing the word. It starts when we remove our royal robes and humble ourselves before the Lord. It starts when we turn from the specific sins that God is convicting us of this morning. And so what are you waiting for to repent? God rejoices when we repent. What a good God we have. Let's pray.